refuse to die in sickness, nor live the long of shameful graybeards. We must die by the sword. We will die in honor. This is my brother, my captain, my podcast. I will avenge you, father! I will save you, mother! I will kill you, Fiona! I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fiona. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is Cut the Thread of Fate, a special episode on Robert Eggers' 2022 film, The Northman. But first, our spoiler warning. We will be discussing The Northman in full today. We will give a quick non-spoiler reaction up top if for any reason you are awaiting our overall opinions before deciding to check it out. But then after an audio break, it's full spoilers. We will also talk about the story in relation to The Lord of the Rings as a story and as a film. So consider our normal spoiler warning on the table too. So before we dive into the story, a quick production summary. The movie is directed by Robert Eggers, who co-wrote it with Sion, an Icelandic poet and novelist. In 2016, Eggers took a trip to Iceland with his wife, Alexandra Shaker, who herself is into Old Norse stories. Here, Eggers met Björk, who would be in the film, and Björk introduced Eggers to Sion. So that's kind of the origin story of this movie. The film stars Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Ethan Hawke, Anya Taylor-Joy, Klaus Bang, Bjork, and Willem Dafoe. Skarsgård specifically had been looking for a Viking project since 2011. Uh, he's really been into the lore and history since a kid, since he himself is uh, broadly from the Icelandic or Norse regions of the world. I don't know exactly <laughs> how to describe it at this point uh, in modern day, but... Yeah, okay, so this... So I, um, there's a, a horror film festival in Dundee called Dundead, um, and uh, my partner Connor and I very stupidly signed up for the uh, Dundead film quiz, and it was all vampire films, so we were just absolutely fucked from the start. But they had one question about Alexander Skarsgård and what his role was in the Vampire Diaries, and I was like, jokingly, like, oh, it's going to be like... I knew it was Eric and I was like, oh, it's going to be Eric Northman. And I was like, there's no fucking way. That's really dumb. We won't write that down. And it is. It's fucking Eric Northman. So the <laughs> role that made him famous is literally the Northman twice over. Absolutely devastating information. But but there you go. <laughs> hey, I'm going to ask this carefully because I don't want to be correcting you, but he was in the Vampire Diaries and not True Blood. Oh, Oh, bugger. I can't remember. Maybe it is True Blood. Maybe it is. Okay. I don't know anything about this. I just things. know he was in one of the vampire things. I didn't watch any of them. So I, it's just like, wow, he was doing double duty <laughs> on vampire stories at 2011. Good for him. Literally in my head, it may as well be, uh, what was the other? Uh, teen. Yeah. Teen Wolf. He could have been in that as well. And I'd be like, yeah, sure. Whatever. All the same. <laughs> Supernatural. Whatever. He's probably in Riverdale too by this yeah. point. Uh, 
Uh, the score for this film was done by Robin Carolyn and Sebastian Gainsborough, and you will hear a little bit of that music as our audio bumpers for this episode. Uh, the movie was filmed from August to December in 2020 in Ireland predominantly uh, and was filmed with about an $80 million budget. The story itself is based on the legend of Amleth by historian Saxo Grammaticus, which would be adapted into Hamlet by some guy no one's ever heard of before. <laughs> um, other influences for the story would include the Poetic Edda, the Prose Edda, Eagle Saga, Greter Saga, and the Saga of Frofler Kraki. Um, please don't ask me what any of those are, but <laughs> <laughs> they were listed as influences in my research. Um, so I guess up top, just kind of non-spoilery, what are your thoughts about this film, Emily? So I think to properly get my thoughts out about this film in the most like intellectual and like well-spoken and sort of calm and well-behaved way I can, what I need to do is drive out to a field in the middle of nowhere and then just fucking shriek for six hours. It is literally so brilliant like i okay so i'm really bad at watching movies like number one because it's a pain in the ass for me to see like i because minus diagnosis it's hard for me to sit in a movie theater and see what's on screen but number two i'm fucking lazy um and unless something like really compels me to go to see like to go to the theater usually that would be like either a horror movie festival or like dune literally um i won't go um and i was kind of hesitant about going to this because it was like the discourse around this has been toxic um i like robert eggers but like could have been just as fine seeing like the lighthouse at home in my bed as I could have been in the cinema. In a lot of ways, I am exactly what uh, cinema distribution companies fear because I am the reason <laughs> VOD <laughs> now exists. Um, but we but we ended up going, um, and um, I within like the first two minutes was literally punching the air because I was so fucking psyched. Every second of this film is like not just so like spot on in terms of like excellent like storytelling and like technically great but it is also just a fucking baller film and the whole way through i like never knew where it was going but it didn't matter because it was like this is the best thing that i've ever seen it doesn't even matter if i actually know what's going on or who any of these characters are because oh my god it's so good <laughs> like you know what i mean <laughs> yeah absolutely i i had much the same reaction uh to it I really loved it. I actually have a really soft spot for both Hamlet, uh, which is, you know, the inspiration for this, or it has a shared inspiration, rather. And then also, I'm really into Norse mythology, which I think I, you guys won't have heard it yet, but I get into it a little bit more with um, our Theoden and Eomer episode coming out soon. Um, so, like, there's a lot of proper nouns in here, which my friend I saw it with, she's like, I, I don't understand what half this stuff is. But I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, that's Idrisil, and those are the Norns, and um, that's Mugen and Hunan, my favorite uh, ravens. Uh, so, like, I knew um, so much of it. So it was painting on a canvas with stuff that I already loved um, or stuff that I at least understood well. And I don't think you need to understand any of that to appreciate the story. Um, but it just like deepened my love for it. Like I'm instantly vibing with all these references to Norse mythology or it's saying, oh, this is clearly an analog to this scene in Hamlet, um, which I love fucking Hamlet and every iteration of Hamlet. Um, so it just like was really vibing with me from the onset. I was looking for Hamlet and Norse stuff throughout. And that's all just like the periphery stuff. That's like what a Marvel movie would consider an Easter egg. Um, but the actual meat of the story uh, is just incredible. It's violent but not violent without a message it's like 
I don't even know how to describe it, but it it does everything I love in terms of being gnarly and inventive with the action sequences and depicting these big battles. But it also says something meaningfully in the course of doing all that, uh, which you usually get one or the other, especially in blockbuster cinema. You especially just get the former, not the latter. Um, so to have those two so perfectly melded together and then on top of that it's just a great looking movie um a lot of it is shot on set um there's a distinct style to both the nighttime and the daytime stuff and you can see how it leans into various horror trappings which is obviously robert eggers bread and butter uh it just everything was kind of clicking for me for this film and i just i had a fucking blast <laughs> no honestly um, okay so i'm i'm really interested because you've got this sort of background and like knowing the kind of norse legends when you walked into this, um, were you kind of like, like, were you able to predict where the story was going and what the plot beats were? Or were you just like also kind of along for the ride? Not really like, okay, wait, hang on. Let me preface this by saying I'm a moron who didn't get the Hamlet <laughs> basis at all. Um, so I did like, I, I missed that obviously the whole way through. So really had no idea where this was going, but did you sit down and you're like, okay, the Hamlet stuff, I know this and the Hamlet stuff, I got this. Or were you just like totally blind as well to it? Um, I would say like the bigger story beats, I was able to, oh, I expect this to come. Like I expected Omleth to confront his mother once he's on his like revenge tour, because that's a very famous scene from Hamlet where Hamlet, uh, I think his mom's name is Gertrude, mm -hmm. if I yeah. remember correctly. Um, like they have a very famous scene in act four where Hamlet like confronts her about Claudius and all that stuff. Um, so I was anticipating a scene like that. And even like the early reviews, um, I didn't see it till like a week and a half after it came out. We're saying, oh, that, you know, Skarsgård Kidman scene is absolutely incredible. And I'm like, oh, that's got to be the act four Hamlet Gertrude equivalent in the film. Um, I kind of pegged that. Olga would be maybe like an Ophelia-like character, even though I don't think they really share a lot in common narrative-wise. Um, I could kind of see like what the parallel was there. but And I figured there would be some big fight between the uncle and uh, Amleth at the end. That sounded about right. Um, I didn't know if Fortinbras was going to appear at the end and say, oh, wow, this is really <laughs> fucked up shit. <laughs> end of story. Uh, I, I guess the Valkyrie kind of fills in the role of Fortinbras, but... So, like, I kind of figured this is where it's going, um, but only in, like, the basic broad strokes is, like, Amleth is going to seek revenge. He's going to have a confrontation with his mother about everything that went down with his uncle. And then in the end, him and his uncle are going to fight and both will probably die. Um, God, I shouldn't have said that in the <laughs> non-spoiler section. Um, well, uh, whatever. It's a thousand-year-old <laughs> legend. I think I think we're, we're fair. So... Um, it was less that I was looking for these things and more when I see something, it like triggered. Like uh, there's a scene with the skull that's supposed to be Willem Dafoe's character. And I instantly thought Hamlet because, of course, there's very famous skull imagery in Hamlet's soliloquies. Um, I believe he speaks directly to one in the Gravedigger mm -hmm. monologue yeah. in the Fifth Act. And I think it's possible Laurence Olivier... Um, monologue to a skull for the big act three to be or not to be speech in his like 1940 whatever film adaptation of hamlet um so like when i see these things i'm like ah yes hamlet uh you know when i see the final battle in the volcano i'm like ah yes lion king another version of hamlet um so it's like things like that that i'm picking out but um and i think part of that is what the movie wanted me to do because we'll get to it in the spoiler section is there's a big contextual twist on everything we had seen before um, and I think 
it, it it wanted me to pick out these things. Oh, these are the beats that I am expecting it to hit, so that when it doesn't hit one of those beats, it like really throws me for a loop. Uh, yeah, no, that that's fair. Um, I I'm kind of cracking up over here because every single thing you're mentioning, I'm just going through the holy shit. I'm the dumbest person on earth for having not picked up on that. Like, like obviously the whole now now that I have been told that this is Hamlet, it, it makes a whole lot of sense because it's exactly that that sort of plot structure. But the skull especially is absolutely making my brain just weep uh because of how like blatant that is and how dumb i am for having not picked up on that and now i'm kind of thinking that like a lot of my reactions to this are probably the same reactions like the kind of like rubish crowd had seeing shakespeare's hamlet for the first time the kind of like clapping like a seal like oh my god the the spectacle of it all um so i'm feeling some deep uh historical connection with my <laughs> medieval cousins <laughs> Oh, uh, next next time uh, you watch Hamlet, you can tell you whoever you're seeing it with that you're getting some real Northman vibes <laughs> from this movie or play. Rather, is probably more likely how you would see it. But um, I think that's probably enough. You uh, ready to dive into the spoiler section? Let's do it. All right. Uh, full spoilers after this audio break. So full spoilers, we are going to run down the plot, uh, kind of broad strokes, not going to every nitty gritty detail, and then kind of riff off of that before kind of going into some deeper analysis afterwards. The story itself takes place in AD 895, kicking off with King Arvindil, also known as the War Raven, played by Ethan Hawke, uh, returning home to his island of Hraffnessy, which I no way that's pronounced like that, but I'm just going to call it that. Uh, where he finds his wife, Gudun, played by Nicole Kidman, and his son, Amleth. Uh, the adult version is played by Skarsgård. I did not get the name of the young actor here. So there's a bit right at the start of this film that has stuck with me. Um, and I now... <sighs> Now that I know that this is Hamlet, I'm like, this is probably why this stuck with me. This was probably immediately obvious to everyone else, and I'm a dipshit for this. But right when, like, young Amleth goes running into Nicole Kidman's, like, bower, like, chambers or whatever, she freaks out at him about not coming into the room without knocking. And that, like, is obviously meant to be like, okay, she's she's shagging around. That's fine. And panicking about it. Um, But it does parallel some stuff that happens at the end of the film when Amleth goes into the bower yet again without knocking and, and actively trying trying to not let her know that he's there. Um, but for some reason, and this is probably going to be the dumbest comment I make this entire podcast, God, I hope it is. Um, I don't know why <laughs> that scene sticks with me so much because I'm like, okay, like obviously the implication that she's like stepping out on the husband is one thing, but it had such a weird play to it 
that I like it is seriously the scene that sticks out the most to me. And I and I can't make heads or tails of it and why it's so like on repeat in my head or what it is about that whole thing. But it is honestly the first scene in this film where I was like, wait, there's something like deeply, profoundly fucked up going on. And I just like if anybody listening to this knows why I, why this scene is like triggering such a freak out in me, please write to me because I can't I can't handle this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to be clear, uh, to be fair, I didn't even flag that that was happening. Um, I kind of have like a weird brain at the start of movies. I'm like thinking so much about the meta and the production side of things as I'm like kind of slipping into the beginning of a film that I kind of miss very obvious plot points right at the beginning. And I think some of that might have just been, oh, this is going to be Hamlet. So if I'm like focusing on like what's on the screen and not what's in the story, um, I'll be able to catch up because I know where this is going broadly. But I didn't even flag that until you put it in the notes. So um, if you're dumb for wondering why, why it like stuck out to you, I'm even dumber for not even <laughs> noticing it was in there. Um, I, one completely separate note I'll add is that uh, Kig Arvindil's name, the War Raven, is just metal as hell. Yep. It's such a good name. Uh, speaking of the War Raven, uh, him and his son Amleth do a special ceremony following the king's return, along with the king's fool, Hymer, who is played by Willem Dafoe. And why no one had cast Willem Dafoe as a fool <laughs> or jester prior to this, uh, sin on Hollywood. But uh, basically what happens is they go to like a special prayer hut, I guess, <laughs> um, and they basically uh, make Amleth swear to avenge his father if any bad shit happens. This is such a brilliant scene. Like, I love it. There were there were definitely some people kind of this movie and then the Green Knight, um, there were a whole bunch of people who were obviously going in expecting to have like the very kind of boring, staid, cut and dry height of the British Empire interpretations of mythology where like everything is just done in the most boring sort of like anti-Shakespearean way imaginable. And they were all kind of looking at each other like, what the fuck are we watching? Um, and that added so much like to the experience for me, just like me sitting there being like, I love that they are barking like dogs. This is brilliant. And all the kind of like slightly posh, slightly annoying crowd being like, how dare they? Um, anyways, so, so the, the Willem Dafoe as the fool is so brilliant. It's just this brilliant little bit of symbolism. Um, because there's so much sort of like cultural and political history behind the the sort of role or the the trope of of the fool um and one of the things particularly Shakespeare uses the fool um as is is a stand-in for sort of like the common man and like common sense generally um but also he but he also uses them as a way to show that like um the the sort of um uh, crafty lower classes can outsmart uh, the upper classes um, through their sort of better understanding of common sense and and through the fact that they aren't uh, like held loyal or like haven't sort of pledged their allegiance to perhaps like the more arcane or uh, absurd um, codes of of like either morality or just civility that the aristocrats hold themselves to. The the, the fool is kind of able to um, use the salt of the earth knowledge that they have to to leapfrog above the the sort of bumbling aristocrats and that is not what's happening here i don't think i i think what's really interesting is that willem defoe's fool is sort of heightening this um spiritual display of like masculinity and warrior culture to the point of absurdity and it sort of makes me wonder like 
if he is truly the fool, is he in on it? And is he looking at this and, and, if, and getting this sort of feeling of power by being like these, these, these fucking moron rich people are barking like dogs and farting and shitting and pissing themselves because I'm telling them to do that. And isn't this whole sort of system a, a joke or has he also like legitimately kind of drank the Kool-Aid? Um, and, and I think that sort of getting that in there right from the start and literally, literally attaching uh, the fool to this overt display of like masculine uh, like celebration and, and behavior is like absolute chef ki- chef's kiss decision making there. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. I hadn't really thought about how it uh, put a spin on the traditional literary fool um, I guess it's not too early to do my Game of Thrones corner here, uh, but in uh, the upcoming show that I'm sure you've seen the trailer for, um, House of the Dragon, which is based on one of Martin's histories called Fire and Blood, um, that book is told through the eyes of a maester who is kind of like the people who wear robes and like the learned people of Westeros. But then they also refer to accounts of Mushroom, who was the royal fool at the time. And it's basically the truth is kind of closer to Mushroom's uh understanding of what happened at court rather than the maesters who's supposed to be like the paper of record Mm -hmm. more or less for Westeros. Um, So kind of seeing that uh, manifest here, but then as you say, kind of spinning that um, into a different like mode in that it's heightening the masculinity um, and like the warrior ethos of these people is like a really good catch. I didn't even think about it that way. I was still a, this is clearly supposed to be an analog of where uh, Hamlet sees his ghost father. Um, (laughs) And then uh, B, I just like, oh, man, Willem Dafoe as a fool. Just brilliant, brilliant. But now looking back at what the story is and knowing where it kind of turns, kind of having this like pre-revenge oath, like you have to take revenge even though nothing has happened yet. Uh, It just probably should have been a bigger red flag to me uh, considering where the story went. Like, why would you swear to something like this before anything has happened? Um, Mm -hmm. Especially when it's like you have to like kill and butcher these people if, you know, your dad is killed. Um, It just seems very preemptive to go that route. That's actually such a brilliant point as well, because I think like obviously I went into this and went uh, the only lens available to me here is uh, the gender lens. Um, but I think that's really good because there is this sort of like um, paranoia that is kind of built into patriarchal masculinity and, and this sort of like, um, you know, here it's this really overt thing of like kill or be killed and and make sure that you have a contingency plan for when you are inevitably killed. Um, but but there's also sort of like all of this other um, paranoia paranoia that, you know, obviously Robert Eggers was explicitly like, I'm not doing a film about modernity and I never will. Um, But in modern masculinity, there is this like, oh, I should dress a certain way, not because any man around me has told me to dress a certain way, but because I don't want to run the risk of men around me seeing me as like a, a, a sissy or a bitch or whatever um or you know uh west side story which is obviously in the news because of that awful spielberg adaptation um west side story does a brilliant job of this where like all of the gang members from both the like polish gang and the uh the the puerto rican gang have these sort of deeply paranoid reactions to their like themselves and their own sort of masculinity, their masculinity, not based on things that are explicitly said to them, but based off of things they think might be said to them. And that is like, like, you're so right to point that out. Like nobody's fucking killed him yet. Nobody's even gotten close enough to kill him yet. And yet he's already 
panicking about that and imparting that panic and that paranoia onto his son. Like, my God, does anybody fuck us up as badly as our parents do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. And especially what we're going to find out about the king, Arvindale. Um, He is a bit of a warmonger and a slaver. So um, I guess he could see the writing on his wall. I was like, yeah, somebody's probably going to come and fucking kill me (laughs) pretty soon. Uh, but it should, it's just one of those things where it's like looking back on it, it's like, ah, obviously this is, this was supposed to like flag something that it didn't flag the first time through. Um, but, uh, we'll move on a little bit because shit immediately happens after this. Um, as Arvindil and Amleth leave the prayer hut, as I'm going to call it, um, he is basically murdered by his brother Fjolnir and his brother's men. Um, it's basically an ambush. Uh, Amleth is able to get away. I think it starts with uh, Ethan Hawke taking a bunch of arrows Boromir style, um, and then men start to emerge out of the woods to finish the job. Uh, Klaus Bang, who plays um, the brother, Fjolnir, he's the one who ultimately, I can't remember if he beheads him or just stabs him through the chest. Um, I don't think it really matters. It's it's a kill shot. It's a kill shot. So at this point, Amleth flees, and this is where he begins reciting the mantra, I will avenge you, father, I will save you, mother, I will kill you, Fjolnir, that has been all over the advertorials for this, and is also will be seen uttered later by the adult Skarsgård. Yeah, and I mean, this is this is awesome, because this is one of these um, super overt shows of like the things that are hammered into us as a kid um, are almost impossible to, to break free of um, without like a, an immense amount of support and sort of like a, a base kind of material change to to our lives if you are raised repeating this mantra then that is what you are going to take with you throughout your entire life and it doesn't matter if you are a a viking warrior in the year 895 ad or if you are uh, a uh, a, an accountant at uh i don't know a fucking startup in the year 2022 like these things stick with you and it's so difficult to kind of shake yourself out of them by yourself and and fundamentally you can't really shake yourself uh, out of it you you have to rely um entirely on other people to kind of do help you with that yeah kind of like how every kid in america is raised as like pro-capitalist pro-patriarchal pro-exceptionalist kind of ideology and it seeps into everything and no wonder all the adults in this country are fucking psycho <laughs> insane bad people um, sorry that's a bit of a <laughs> but i just Think about the things that get hammered home to us as children and that how hard it is to break out of it. Uh, you must unlearn what you have learned or something like that. Um, I did not think I was going to get a Yoda quote <laughs> in this episode. Um, so then uh, Amleth is raised as a berserker, which is something we'll go into in our Theoden and Eomer episode coming soon, uh, by some Vikings. I call them wolfish Vikings because they like to howl a lot and they wear, they adorn themselves in wolf skins. Uh, what uh, Alexander Skarsgård wears is like an actual like wolf's head on top of his um, head. So it's a very distinct look. Uh, sorry, definitely makes me think about Rob Stark uh, getting his head cut off and replaced with his dire wolf's head. Uh, but this is definitely a lot. Uh, I wouldn't call it better, but it's not as sad as the Red <laughs> Wedding was. So um, I'll just stop myself there. Uh, what do you got on this one? Yeah, so this scene was really interesting for me. And this was, I think, the first scene where I like felt, and now in retrospect, I'm obviously dipshit, but where I felt properly kind of unsettled about what I thought this 
plot was going to do because I kept waiting throughout this village scene um, for them to do some sort of like sappy stuff where like Amleth sees himself in one of the kids and, um, you know, begins to have this change of heart and and this turn from violence and this realization that like, oh, this Viking berserker lifestyle actually doesn't fix any of my problems. And look at this kid who's just going to carry on through this cycle of violence. And, and they never do that. <laughs> like they never do that. He does not show an ounce of empathy towards any of the kids, any of the screaming women. You know, they lock the doors and light a, a, a hut on fire with a whole bunch of screaming women in it. And he doesn't fucking blink. Um, and I think that is brilliant because it is this sort of unflinching take on, on, on violence. And it's this kind of casting of the gauntlet that, that says that this is the level that we are operating at for the rest of this film. And you need to now start thinking about what this means for how you are going to like participate in this film as a viewer. Yeah. Um, I think I have these notes a little later down, but the way the camera is kind of working here after, um, the actual attack on the village of Roos, uh, and there's some like cool stuff in the attack, uh, specifically, uh, Amleth, like grabbing a spear out of thin air, yeah. um, and then throwing it. Um, it's like a lot cooler version of what's in that Lord of the Rings rings of power trailer where, um, the elf like grabs the arrow and then knocks it to his own bow. Um, this one looked a lot cooler, yeah. um, probably because of how it was shot and because of how well it was lit. Um, there's also a really long take of, um, Amleth climbing up the wooden fence uh, just with his ass, um, his ass, his, his <laughs> axe and his free arm. Uh, there ass. was a lot of ass into it. <laughs> but, um, and my ass. <laughs> oh, God. How have we not said that before? Oh, but anyway, so it's like, it's it's a pretty metal, like if you're just in it for like kind of the action and gnarly stuff, the way it starts out is like great. And then as like, you know, the victory is won and we see them kind of, you know, either chaining up women and children to be slaves or just crowding them into this farmhouse to burn down. The way that it's like, they still have Skarsgård in frame and kind of in the foreground as the center focus. Um, and then you see all these kids and screaming women behind him. And part of like me knowing how Hollywood generally does cinema is like, oh, this is probably going to lead to some kind of redemptive arc or like understanding the violence, as you say. But it's like very clear that he's completely nonplussed by it. He is... I, he's like completely head empty to be honest <laughs> um he is not thinking at all about the violence and we even see uh anya taylor joy's character who like really enters the story later on uh but we see her in the background amongst us i think she's yelling for some kids who are about to be killed in front of her oh, wow. um and then she's you know taken as one of the slaves so it's like trying to like prep you for the way a more traditional or more Hollywood style version of the story would go where they realize, ah, maybe we shouldn't be burning kids and women in houses, but it, it just kind of all happening in the background as if Amleth doesn't even notice it's happening. Yeah. See, that's okay. That's brilliant. And, 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 um, <laughs> I'm laughing because I did not notice Anya Taylor joy in the background at all. Uh, classic. Uh, maybe I do need to go to a, <laughs> an ophthalmologist appointment. Um, but I also think like one of the things that I find really kind of compelling about this so far um is that um this is not a film that is particularly concerned with the individual like obviously it has an individual protagonist but it's pretty clear that like there can be no redemption through individual change like number one people aren't going to feel particularly compelled to change at an individual level when the only sort of um, real sort of uh, impetus they have to change is like their individual interactions. Like that individual change is incredibly hard on that. And, and the film like really doubles down on that. But it also sort of doubles down on this like um, 
there is there is sort of no way to progress through these like systems of evil essentially um without reckoning with the fact that um we're all participants in it if that makes sense like like he immediately mm-hmm. goes from amleth immediately goes from being a victim in this exact se- scenario to being the perpetrator of it and that's that kind of theme that shows up time and time and time again in in uh in this film is like the kind of duality of being both victim and perpetrator at once and how that is something that is essentially inescapable so long as like uh the the kind of tyranny of violence and the tyranny of patriarchy like continue to exist um and it, it is, um, like you say, not something we see in like mainstream Hollywood films right now, but it's also a very sophisticated take on um, something that's quite complex. And I think um, I'm going to I'm going to put a pin in this because I realize that I'm kicking open a Pandora's box here. But I think that kind of uh, sophistication is is probably why the discourse around this film has been so batshit crazy. Yeah, if it's not spelled out for you, uh, people just go fucking wild with the stupid takes. But um, but anyways, uh, moving on from there, I think the following evening or sometime right around uh, the raid on this village, um, he's basically called into um, a hut. It might even be the hut they burned down with all the people in it. I can't exactly remember. Uh, but here he encounters a Cirrus, which at first I thought Cirrus was a name, but it's actually just the feminine version of Seer, like a you know, a truth seer or fortune seer. Um, And the seer gives him a prophecy, which I call like a lowercase p prophecy. It's not like Anakin's going to bring down the Sith kind of thing, but basically that he's going to take his vengeance and then he will meet a maiden and that will lead to a new line of kings. Um, What did you think of the scene? So I, so first off, uh, my brain went into overdrive because Bjork (laughs) Um, and that Mm -hmm. was exciting. Um, The, so the burned out, uh, cap, uh, hut, not cabin, hut, um, was like a really good way of, of kind of, uh, I mean, literally setting it up sort of in the ashes of his, his crime. And he obviously didn't light the, the fire, but you know, he was complacent during it. So it was still his, his crime. Um, but so I can't remember this exactly, but I think she offers him a choice at some point. Cause she has that like teardrop in her hand. And she's like, this teardrop contains like the ocean of your sorrows or whatever it is. And I think there's a moment of choice where he gets to choose to take it. I think it's something like that. Or I can't remember exactly how how it functions, but I remember thinking that it was a really interesting take on like the whole issue of prophecy and destiny because it made him more uh, not animated, but like it, it gave him sort of more autonomy and more power in the situation. He didn't just passively or he didn't necessarily have to passively allow the prophecy to happen to him. He chose to passively allow the prophecy to happen to him. And that I thought was like, damn, like this film is really uh, pulling out all the stops and and it's uh, it's argument here. Yeah, no, I think this is, I'm kind of guessing. I think we both only seen this movie once and we both have brain worms. So the exact (laughs) details might be hard to remember, but I think this is where the, um, you can show kindness to your kin or you can show hatred for your enemies. I'm pretty sure that uh, Bjork is the one who gets to deliver that line. And that informs the choice you're talking about. And often, you know, prophecy in story, especially myth is, you know, self-fulfilling, like the actions we take not to 
make the prophecy come true is what leads to it becoming true. So it's kind of weird or not weird, but it's actually like a refreshing twist where it's like, actually do this and the prophecy will happen. Um, and that's the choice that Amleth makes. And I think that kind of speaks to what you're saying that it's very, it's very distinct from how other prophecies are kind of laid into other like myths similar to this. So while all that is happening, we'll catch up a bit with his uh, Amleth's uncle Fjolnir, who was, he took the throne um, as king after he killed Arvindale, but then Fjolnir himself was deposed by Harold of Norway, and now he rules just a tiny island of, or a tiny island off of Iceland, or a tiny fiefdom within Iceland, I can't remember what exactly it is. Um, since uh, that coup, he has wed Amleth's mother, uh, and then they have had a son, Gunnar. Uh, Fjolnir had a son prior to that, uh, Thorir. I don't think we ever get mention of who his mother was at any point. I don't think it matters for this story. Oh, wait. Okay. So this is what I'm confused about because doesn't – at the start of the film, I – okay, there's a chance I'm just projecting insane things. I think Nicole Kidman's holding a baby at one point and it – Oh, bugger. Now I can't remember that. Maybe I've just invented this, but I thought she was holding a baby at the start when uh, Ethan Hawke comes back from war. And he's like definitely under the impression that it's his kid. And then that kid grows up and he, that son, Thorier, is the half brother of Amleth. Or maybe I'm just talking absolute shit because he's the one that grows up to be that sort of posh prick. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. May okay, maybe maybe I am totally talking shit. Maybe there isn't a baby, and I've just inserted a baby into that scene like a total weirdo. But yeah, um, but it is interesting that there is this like uh, emphasis on the sort of like not speed, but like the 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 kind of uh, fluidity of these kind of family units, and that there are like so many different potential combinations and 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 makeups of them. Um, and I don't say that because I think that's something that's like a historical that. Um, Robert Eggers has inserted uh, retrospectively, but I actually think it's a far more historically accurate take on what uh, families looked like and and that sort of mixing and blending a la the Brady Bunch is actually uh, far more representative of what family units looked like before uh, the Victorians uh, got their hands on all of our historical documents and uh, just obliterated the historical record. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. I honestly cannot remember. I actually like the idea of Kidman having a kid in that first scene and maybe Amla thinking it's his like full baby brother instead of like, you know, gotten by Fjolnir instead of his own father. Uh, but I, for some reason, I just feel like if uh, Amla thought that he had a full blooded brother at some point, that would have been mentioned. Yeah. But again, you know, Eggers isn't, you know, is he's not someone who's necessarily going to give you all the facts you need to know to tie everything up in a nice little package. So um, I actually kind of like the uncertainty there, and that's something I'm going to look for uh, when this movie drops on streaming or video on demand, uh, because I actually think it would be kind of cooler if she is holding a baby there, and we're supposed to think, oh, that's probably Amleth's younger brother, just newborn, but then it turns out, oh, no, this is actually gotten by Fjolnir in her you know, stepping out on the king, so to speak. So at this point, uh, Amleth, posing as a slave, makes for Fjolnir's lands, and on the ship there is where he meets Olga, who is played by Anya, Anya Taylor-Joy, and she's a supposed sorceress, and together they conspire to unleash a nightmare on Fjolnir and his folk. 
uh, one night uh, once they've been sold into slavery on uh, Fjolnir's lands. Uh, Amleth sneaks away, or is possibly called, to a witch who shows Amleth the skull of Hymer, the fool that Defoe played in the first act. Um, and then the skull kind of directs Amleth towards Draugr, which is basically a magical sword, a sword I like to call the Sword of Night and Flame because that is a weapon from Elden Ring that kicks ass. Um, but this sword, this magical sword that Amleth is supposed to seek, can only be wielded at night or at the gates of hell. Amleth would go on to obtain the blade by defeating the undead Mound Dweller. And I'm putting defeating like with a question mark because the way this film or the scene is shot, it is not exactly clear if this battle actually happened or if it happened in his mind or was just kind of kind of fever dream. We basically see Amleth go to this corpse holding a sword. He tries to grab the sword. Um, the corpse comes to life wielding the magical sword. And then Amleth defeats it, you know, after a little fight sequence that's pretty neat. And then it kind of just does this really nice transition where the camera just kind of pans back to the original um, cut where uh, Amleth was going up to the sword and the sword, uh, the corpse in the first place, and then he's just able to freely take the sword. So it's very not clear what exactly happened, which I actually love that ambiguity. And I do as well. And and I'm, I've just had like my, a light bulb, not a light bulb moment, but I have to say this, otherwise I will uh, cry. Um, the word Draugr um, is used in the Oh, bugger. Now I'm going to forget the language. Uh, the Norwegian translation of Lord of the Rings to stand in for the Nazgul and the Witch King of Angmar. Um, and then it's also um, the the like actual historical concept of the Draugr, like the, the kind of zombie warrior figures, uh, was used by Tolkien to inspire the Barrow Whites that uh, the hobbits and Tom Bombadil come across in the Barrow Downs. So so that's that. There's a brief Lord of the Rings connection there. And the uh, the the sort of fluidity or the like ambiguity that you were talking about in that uh, fight scene is uh, fucking brilliant. And, and I'm so glad we can talk about this because I think that like whole sort of issue of like the unreality of it is great because it connects to the kind of unreality of like test of masculinity generally. Cause like for me, the kind of main questions are like, did he actually have this fight? Is this just what he's imagining in his head? Or is this just what like the chronicler of his story is telling us happened? And then the kind of rapper question to this, which is like, does it even matter if he really did it? Since in the end, he actually does get this deadly weapon into his hand. Does the legend behind it matter? Because ultimately this deadly weapon does what it's meant to do, which is kill things. Does the the sort of, you know, lore or uh, like rationalizing myth behind it really matter when the actual material impact of this weapon is, is death and destruction? Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely great. Um, I, I just love everything about the scene. Um, it's not one of the like more intense action sequences, but it's also just one of the really nicely shot for something that's supposed to be completely in the dark. Mm. Um, this movie does like this really great nighttime filter where it's like everything's kind of like grayish, like things that are lit at nighttime and then everything else kind of fades into the black. Um, so it gives everything kind of a dusty, but also like not primordial feeling and not medieval, but just something like ancient um I, I can't really describe it but just like the night and day contrast in this film is just so great um and i really love that you were able to pull Draugr as a lord of the rings uh, tangent um because when i think of being wielded at night or at the gates of hell um that really rings true for the nazgul because 
I, I know they kind of fly around all day or whatever, but like I associate them with nighttime scenes and then uh, Minas Morgul, the city of the dead where the Nazgul reside is kind of the gates of hell in its own way. Um, so I just kind of really like that connection there, even if it's just more of a linguistic borrow than a thematic borrow. Um, big fan of it. Um, so then uh, it's time to play some sports and save the rec center or something uh, because then we uh, catch up with our players. I call it croquet or softball because I don't know <laughs> what to call it, but I think you actually know what the sport is that they uh, play at Fjolnir's court. Yeah, so it's a, a predecessor to Shinti, which is a Norse or Gaelic sport. Um, Shinti's now having sort of a bit of a renaissance uh, in Ireland and, and Scotland, um, and it's very close to like... Uh, lacrosse or field hockey um not quite as violent as it looks in the film but not not violent either <laughs> so um and one speaking of i think one thing that's really stands out about this is that this quote-unquote fun recreational sports thing is violent as hell uh fjolnir and gurdu or Grud guys, I think I misspelled <laughs> Nicole Kidman's character name. So Fjolnir and Nicole Kidman's son Gunner get severely hurt during the sequence because he rushes the field like basically like he's a streaker at a baseball game, but I think he was just like going to his favorite athlete or something like that, or trying to chase the ball down. And then he gets kind of clocked by this giant Shinty player who is played by Game of Thrones the Mountain. And this is where Amleth kind of jumps in and saves the boy, um, saves his life, and for saving the life, he is awarded a wife. Um, and I, too, would like to be awarded a <laughs> wife for being good at sports. But sadly, I am bad at sports. <laughs> and in this way, it becomes the ideal 1980s movie uh, where the nerds <laughs> eventually get their revenge. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like this. Um, I'm, You know, when I say what I'm about to say, I'm, I'm not dunking on sports. Like, I used to play ice hockey, which is certainly among the more needlessly brutal sports out there. Uh, certainly when you're a child with, with like, no filter. Um, but I do like that, like, there is this um, argument that men um, or people generally can never fully get away from from violence. Um, and even in leisure and at play, they're always tearing each other apart and effectively trying to kill one another. Um, and then there's this sort of introduction of this almost class-specific um, uh, like uh, uh view on this this scene because it's obviously the slaves are playing one another and beating each other to death for the entertainment of the aristocrats um and there's this this really interesting level to it there where like at least i felt like oh well all these guys these slaves are like they're all slaves like they're not separated by by class they are all of the same class they are all slaves so surely they have a common enemy here and wouldn't it be great if given that they're already exerting this violence that they just turned around and wiped out the aristocrats but this movie takes that sort of a step further and makes the far more uh, I, I hate to say it but far more realistic and and far more compelling argument which is that um we when we are faced with these awful systems of oppression, we often make up rationalizations um, for why we participate in them. And both the mountain, um, I, I can't remember his name, he's the mountain now, uh, and Amleth, um, participate in their own way in this sort of form of rationalization where like the mountain is obviously beating the shit out of people for the sake of beating the shit out of people. But Amleth develops his own sort of morality to justify the violence by saving a kid. Um, and yes, he he's like his half brother, but, but there is this sort of thing where it's like, he is needlessly violent with, with the mountain. It's not just a one and done kill. It's quite a bloody kill. Um, and, and, 
there is this establishment of this moral code, this chivalric moral code to justify this violence, even though they both have a common enemy and really shouldn't be beating the shit out of each other. And I just thought that was like an, an awesome touch there. A really great one. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned class as well, because on top of being awarded a wife, uh, Amleth is basically made head slave guy. Yeah. Um, so he gets preferential treatment and can tell other slaves what to do. So we see that kind of class structure or the separation from the royalty and the slaves uh, kind of take its own form amongst the slave class itself. Um, so we see that kind of top down uh perpetuation of the systems that are kind of controlling everyone so that even the uh, what's it called slaves become complicit in the system of hierarchy and social hierarchy yeah see th that that's a really brilliant point i totally forgotten about that and and there's been a lot of really dumb discourse ar around this film uh just just noxiously stupid discourse um but you are so right to 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 point that out because I think that's actually one by far and away one of the the sort of more um thoughtful takes on on the issue of slavery in recent cinema history um, and 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 that acknowledgement that um because these situations are so fucking depraved but also there's the sort of inescapable totality to them people will sort of consign themselves to it and find ways to 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 benefit or to protect themselves in other ways that's a far more interesting take on the the sort of slavery component of this than some of the sort of more lazy elements that um, I've seen um, certainly circulating in the Twitter sphere, which is like people bitching because they're like, oh, well, why would you show white slavery when there was other types of slavery taking part or taking place in 88895? Or like, why is it only white people in this film? And and, and I'm like, because the, the emphasis here is on uh, the, the the sort of violence and, and the like disgustingly corrupting nature of like patriarchy and slavery and, 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 and violence. And, um, you know, my question is why would you want to use, uh, you know, non-white people to make that argument when you could far more compellingly use white people to, to make that argument by, by sort of subverting these expectations around what, uh, what class domination uh, looks like, uh, in the, the sort of legendary and historical sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely agreed. I'm glad I didn't see that specific discourse. I've seen a lot of bad discourse around this movie, but um, I did not see that one. And I am thankful for that. And I'm going to stare clear of that. Um, so moving on, we start to get to the point where the story kind of starts to turn before it like flat out does a Yui on us. So following the sporting event, Amleth takes Olga to wet in bed and he begins working with her to start harrying Fjolnir and his men. Um, and I think you have a comment here that I want to give space for. <laughs> yeah. So Anya Taylor-Joy doing what Anya Taylor-Joy does best. And, uh, this sounds like me being an asshole. Um, I genuinely don't mean it. I do think she's very talented at fulfilling this, uh, maybe not so talented at other things. Um, but she's playing the manic pixie dream girl here. Um, and I don't say that as like a criticism. I think it's a very, uh, helpful and interesting, uh, like deployment of the manic pixie dream girl trope particularly because of its later subversion as we will chat about towards the end of the, the the sort of plot discussion but her stepping up and having this sort of level of like intellectual power um and and her intellectual contribution to this overall crusade is uh very interesting and and something we will certainly have to talk about in light of uh, Lord of the Rings and um certain uh 
other blonde characters <laughs> later on. Yeah, watch out, Legolas, we're coming for you. <laughs> um, I, I still can't get out of my head when you cast Anya as Glorfindel. I think that's perfect. So I'm just always going to see her as an elf going forward. Hell yeah. At this point, Amleth uh, starts his... I don't know, revolution. No, that's probably like rebellion, his incitement of hatred, whatever you want to call it. He starts doing nasty mutilation things, uh, most gnarly of which is butchering a bunch of Fjolnir's men and then basically pinning them to the roof of Fjolnir's house and cutting up their limbs and heads in a way to make it look like a horse. Um, And this is definitely a moment where I was like, wait a second i've seen i've seen enough heroes journeys and takes on hamlet this seems a bit extreme there's no way the i i hate to talk about movies in terms of like who i root for because i don't believe that's what movies or stories are about really it's more about the themes and you you've heard me talk about <laughs> movies this is nothing new to you but like you know you're still generally when you're watching a movie for the first time you're like oh yeah i'm kind of on this guy's side or i disagree with him whatever but this is a point where it's like I don't think I want to root for a guy who like cuts up human bodies and turns it into a horse painting or sculpture. <laughs> um, it was just like such a, such an unhinged act of violence that I couldn't really like square it right in the moment. And then the rest of the story made a ton of sense for why this happened. But <laughs> I was just like, what the hell is this? Yeah, no, legit. Um, it, it was very evocative to me of um, Brian Fuller's Hannibal show. Cause they've got like a whole bunch of these like awful mutilations, um, throughout the four seasons that that show ran and and um brian fuller in particular is really good at sort of making a a, like genuine art out of violence um and and sort of not passive violence but but past tense violence like hannibal is really great at showing the, the sort of like uh unhinged and unsettling kind of beauty of these like desecrations and and anyways that's kind of the whole thesis of of Hannibal Uh, and it was really interesting seeing that on show here um but the other thing that I thought um was (laughs) I hate to bring up the fucking discord I don't hate it but I also hate it like I hate that I know this stuff and wish I couldn't talk about it but unfortunately it's planted itself in in my head and I can't remove it except by uh the ring style making other people <laughs> cope with it. Um, but there were there were a lot of people who were talking about this scene in particular as like, oh, how could they possibly portray a slave rebellion like this? Like, isn't this awful that they would say that like when slaves rebel, they behave so brutally? And to me, the the key point is that he's not he's not a slave because he was enslaved. He is a slave because he actively chose to be a slave to go take on this further crusade of violence. It's not like he was conquered. It's not like he lost a battle or lost a war and was taken into slavery by a dominating force. He, as that dominating force, made the choice to exploit this incredibly violent, downwardly violent system to his own ends. This is not a genuine slave rebellion in the way that, you know, uh, uh, sort of Revolutionary War era slave rebellions or or indeed the entire Haitian Revolution was a slave rebellion. And this is uh, 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 someone taking advantage of the the sort of aesthetics and um, like power and precarities of a slave system to stage a violent crusade. There is no interest in overturning the system or, or emancipating anybody at all. And I, and I think that's the kind of really key thing. And that's why this violence is so fucking crazy is because he's not doing it for an ideological reason. He's doing it because he genuinely believes in this violence. 
Yeah, wow. Well, that's such a poor reading on the film <laughs> to yeah. say that uh, this is kind of like undermining slave rebellions or like kind of like throwing them under the bus because we literally see him brand himself as a slave and then he swims out to Anya Taylor-Joy's uh, whatever slave ship she was on. Uh, to, like he's actively, you know, choosing his own enslavement. And I think even so, like, I don't think he's like, truly enslaved in the way his fellow slaves actually are like if he just wanted to like take a weapon and start fighting his way out of there i'm sure he could have which is why he um, does he yeah <laughs> yeah because he's not bound with shackles or like tied to other people or anything like that so to say like his actions are reflective of any kind of prescriptive or descriptive slave rebellion history or morality um just media illiteracy 101 yep. i'm sorry but that is absolutely not what is happening here and the other reason someone might think that is if they've just bought hook line and sinker that this guy this main character is our hero of the story and have not actually engaged with the hour or so of story that we've seen where he's basically a butcher and a berserker and not that great despite possibly having a genuine motivation for the actions he's taking. Yeah. And and just because we've seen him as a kid, I know that he had shit digs does not uh, inherently justify the sort of level of violence that he then meets out. And it does not justify his uh, incredibly fucked up behavior. And I, and I think that's certainly like a problem with a lot of like left liberal uh, media discourse is like the, the sort of mistaking of empathy and sympathy for, for fellow man, for like um, apologia and, and like, uh, outright like uh, uh, excusing of uh, deeply bad behavior on the basis of oh well this person is traumatized well damn it dude we're all fucking traumatized <laughs> uh, so this kind of moves us into our major turn of the movie I think it would be uh, technically called the climax because the climax is usually means a turning point and not when uh, the Avengers kill Thanos or whatever <laughs> But uh, Amlet, Amlet confronts his mother, um, and again, he thinks she's a prisoner to this whole situation, that um, she loved his father, the war raven, and that uh, the Uncle Fjolnir took her against her will. But as it turns out, she wanted to be with Fjolnir, and it was actually the war raven who was like a bad husband and a warmonger, and was originally her slaver, that she was captured and then taken and she was initially raped and that was what led to Amleth. So she actually wanted Fjolnir to uh, both take the throne from uh, Arvindale and also to kill Amleth. Yeah, I mean, this this scene in when I saw this for the first and only time, I almost stood up and just fucking scream to the high heavens it was so perfect um it, it's probably one of my favorite scenes in in movie history right now um I, and like one of the things that i love about it is that it is uh a, an incredibly nuanced take about like the position of humanity uh under patriarchy right like she is a victim there's no denying that she's a victim she's a victim of rape she's she's a victim of sort of untold unrelenting violence um and she is also an active perpetrator of it um and that duality that sort of um uh dialectic i guess um is absolutely <laughs> crucial to understanding like ourselves now as we exist under patriarchy and being able to recognize that sort of like duality of of, of humanity is is the way to understand better the system that, that these systems that we live under um and you know for me the really crucial thing um is that she has 
opportunities to make choices. Um, and she does make choices, which means she is very much an active participant in her own life. And she chooses wrongly. Um, so, you know, given the sort of uh, stupid as shit liberal feminist take that is so popular right now, given that she is a victim of, of rape and ongoing trauma and ongoing violence at the hands of men, uh, we would uh, inherently and necessarily think that everything that she does is going to be um, about, uh, uh, like, is going to be justifiable, justifiable on the basis that, that she's a victim. And um, she is necessarily going to work um, towards the the sort of uh, moral liberation of the people around her because she's a woman and, and, and women sort of inherently do that. And, and this scene shows correctly that that is bullshit and that she has had this this sort of stacking buff debuff of violence um done to her for for decades for her entire life um and yet despite this she has not developed um or overdeveloped a sense of sympathy or empathy or solidarity with other people in her situation she's actually developed a, a, a sort of revenge complex where she actively encourages greater and greater acts of violence and greater and greater acts of sort of um, patriarchal like self-degradation because she has accepted the logic of patriarchy so fully. Like instead of being like all this stuff that horrible stuff that happened to me happened to me and that's fucked up and that's a sign that like this world is doing wrong by me. She's taken all of this stuff that has happened to her that is unspeakably evil and decided that the only way to that 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 is the only way that the world can be and that to to sort of uh, get her own claw back her own and it, it necessarily involves her her sort of meeting out that same degree of violence to other people. And and she is given these moments, you know, when they are exiled to bumfuck nowhere, Iceland, they could theoretically she could theoretically kind of um untether herself from from the sort of bonds of, of like patriarchal subjugation now now obviously not to the fullest extent because you know you, you can't entirely kind of escape the stuff without like a like a proper sort of material and like psychological revolution whatever but like she could take steps to kind of remove this violence from her life and she doesn't she chooses to double down on it and that is brilliant like that is a breathtakingly sincere and deeply realized take on not just sort of women under patriarchy, but but sort of the common condition of people under under patriarchy and the horrible fucked up things it makes us do, even if we are also simultaneously victims of it. Yeah, um, I hope I'm not going to veer too far from that, but I kind of view it as very similar to what we just talked about with Amleth, where he was trying to rebel. I don't think he was like trying to rebel against the system per se, but you see him when he, you know, puts on the slave um, facade. Um, he's still using modes of violence that he learned as being at the top of the food chain. Um, and he's just, you know, redirecting the direction of that violence uh, upwards instead of downwards. And this is, we see uh, Nicole Kidman's character also using the same tools of the system that's oppressing her, but instead to get what she wants or what she needs. Uh, sorry, that's probably not the right word, but we see her, she knows, you know, it would be um, the brother killing the king and then taking the throne and then not fundamentally changing anything, even when they are deposed and moved off to Iceland. Um, it's still pretty much a perpetuation of the same system and the same mindset. Um, and I think that's something similar between the two of them, even though they're working at opposite ends. of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like the whole kind of thesis of this film is, is you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. And, and, and there are two sort of 
well, multiple, but kind of two um, very prominent positions on this. And one is the condition of of Amleth, who uh, who who takes the, the sort of very hyper masculine approach to it, um, and then uh, his his mother Nicole Kidman, um, who takes this sort of um, expected feminine approach to to living under patriarchy, which is to turn sort of the levers of patriarchy against men. And uh, as it turns out, none of them benefit for it. And love it it's just so like ah, i get so hyped about it I've, i i came out of that movie theater and i was like vibrating with excitement because i was like this is so fucking good and the twitter discourse is gonna be awful but it's so fucking good and i want to watch it 20 more times <laughs> oh yeah i think um i'm not sure if it's my favorite scene of this movie just because i have a soft spot for like heads being cut off and stuff <laughs> like that but it's it's got to be one of the, my favorite dramatic moments i've ever seen and i'm really trying to think of great movie scenes that like recontextualize like not just recontextualize but like literally flip everything you were thinking on its head um like so succinctly um and so like true to the material that it doesn't feel like this is a rug pull to be a rug pull it feels like this is exactly what every single detail of the story was building to was this scene um and this like revelation so to speak about what actually was the context for um the death of arvindale and the rise of fjolnir in the first place and it's really funny because uh the you know maybe because i have the brain of a small child but the thing that this kind of evokes for me is uh the vader reveal in empire um the luke's father uh spoilers um luke you know the fact that vader is luke's father and and that level of sort of realizing that like all of the evil in the galaxy could be wrapped up into someone that that you are are meant to 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 love. Uh, like the world tells you that you are meant to love your parents and and meant to even like them. Um, and then the sort of later throne room confrontation where Luke is presented with this choice that Amleth continually has throughout the, this film, which is: Do you choose the life of violence and of revenge because it would feel good, or do you take the much harder route to take, which is the the sort of road of of uh, uh, of anti violence and, and forgiveness and uh, not taking the instant gratification of emotional emotional catharsis for this wider betterment of of like you know humanity, TM, but yourself and the people around you, and it is kind of a dark side. <laughs> Luke in a lot of ways um but also I have uh, the brain of a small toddler so I'll go back to my Tonka truck <laughs> yeah no 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 that's that's absolutely great like that whole you know uh Luke throwing away his saber and saying you know I am a Jedi like my father before me that is literally him choosing kindness for his kin and rejecting hatred for his enemies like that's pretty much like the text of that scene um so I think that's like absolutely the best parallel to come up with here so from this point, Amleth kills Thorir, which is, again, Fjolnir's son, but not by Gudrun, uh, Nicole Kidman's character. And he takes his heart, like he literally cuts <laughs> Thorir's heart out of his chest, which he will later barter for Olga's life. Um, once they realize, after the confrontation with his mother, um, they know Amleth is the one that's been killing everyone. At first, it was a little bit of, um, trying to think of a good analogy, but it's like, no one knows who's actually killing all these people, but it's, you know... You, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. It's a popular trope in stories. Yeah. Um, so um, Amleth is then captured and tortured. Um, and then he's kind of strung up like from the rafters, not by his neck, but by his wrists. Um, so he's kind of hanging there. And this is very specific imagery um, because um, the Norse god Odin, the All-Father, who sadly you probably mostly know as Anthony Hopkins <laughs> from the Marvel movies, 
Um, what he did in classic Norse mythology is he hung himself from the tree of life, um, the world tree. That's Idrisil, which gets a couple uh, visual shout outs in this film. Um, and he hung himself from it and he cut out his eye and gave it to like the well of wisdom or so, so, some bullshit like that. Um, and it was through that process and he hung for like several days, um, maybe months, weeks. I think it's like three days. It's almost supposed to be akin to like Jesus yeah. um, in that way. But um, basically when he did that kind of sacrifice, it gave him, um, he got some kind of like worldly or otherworldly wisdom. And that's when he became the all father. So this, you know, very meaty, sexy, muscle toned man <laughs> being hung like this. Um, like I immediately was like, oh, this is Odin imagery. And then lo and behold, the next thing they show you is like a literal ghost of Odin behind him. And we see ravens come in and um, kind of like free uh, cut the like, you know, peck through the ropes that are holding up Amleth. And uh, Odin had two uh, two ravens, uh, Munin and Hugin, um, or it, maybe it's Mugen and Hunin. I forget <laughs> which which letter starts with which. Um, but basically, they're kind of his like spies. Like they're the ones who go into the nine realms and tell Odin what's going on. But they're also his servants to do these kind of like little things, like they can peck through ropes and stuff like that. Um, so it's like really cool that you know what's happening here is both kind of supposed to be natural because it's just kind of like a flock of ravens but then with the odin stuff it's like it's kind of supernatural and again kind of like the fight with the mound dweller it's like what actually is happening here what's natural what's supernatural it's all kind of unsure but i think that ambiguity actually plays exceedingly well for the story that's being told yeah um i have to continue my uh trend of absurdly relating things to war criminals because i don't know anything about norse mythology i did not think about jesus at all in this i was like oh this is gitmo um so (laughs) like it it also isn't because i think the gitmo picture is the guy with the black hood over his face i think the hands tied is a different uh black site uh nevertheless uh i did not have the intellectual take on this i was a very post 9-11 baby brained on that one No, I, I I think it's hard to see people hanging like that in a post nine eleven world and not and not actually jump to that conclusion as well. So I definitely get that. Moving into the last act, we see Amleth freeze Olga, and then they kind of set out to some other place, uh, but. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> okay. This is like, I was like clutching the armrest on this cause I was so excited and, um, I was not heartbroken when it did not go the way that I, uh, thought it would, but, but I was absolutely giddy because I thought this was going to be their, um, Eowyn and Faramir moment where the two of them were going to turn away from violence and, and choose to become healers and to like, you know, love all things that grow and are not barren. And I was like, this is it. They are, they are riding off into paradise together and they are going to forsake civilization to, to sort of <laughs> cut their own path in life. And that is definitely mm-hmm. what the, the film is setting up. Um, but I think the reason why it sets that up is obviously because it's making this wider argument about, about violence and, and systemic change and, and the relationship of the individual to like systemic change um, but the other thing that I want to shout out that cracks me up is that there's like a mid 2000s uh, TV ad in Britain for uh, Borsan cheese um, and it's li- like this couple like frolicking through the fields um, and 
like I think it's meant to kind of evoke like the Fred Alps or, or the Swiss Alps or whatever, um, frolicking through the the the, fountain, the mountainous fields that look exactly like this, and then they sit on the like blanket and it's like du pain, du vin, du boursin, and it looks exactly <laughs> like this scene. And the whole way through watching it, I was like, great that we might get the Ferdinand in moment. Much funnier that this definitely looks like an ad for cheese and wine. <laughs> But it is aboard this boat. Um, you know, Olga reveals she is pregnant with twins, um, kind of. Um, we ca- kind of get a vision of the world tree again, and we see, like, two children hanging from it, which is kind of borrowing from that Odin uh, imagery that I mentioned earlier. And I think this is, again, where Amleth repeats what was told to him by the seer about, you know, you can either show kindness for your kin, um, or he can show hatred for his enemies. The kindness for his kin would be his yet unborn children. Uh, while his hatred for his enemies is to ensure, you know, is to go kill Fjolnir and possibly ensure that Fjolnir's wrath doesn't follow him. Yeah, well, and this is where he makes the most, like, dipshitted choice of all time. And it's interesting because it is, like, the sort of exact kind of argument you would imagine his character to make, which is, he's like, I I will show kindness to my kin by extinguishing these folks. And that's when he, you know, he dives off the the ship and, and goes swimming back. And it was so infuriating for me sitting in the cinema because, like, the minute he started talking, I was like, I know this is what's gonna happen right now. And I'm so mad that he's going to do it and it's so in line with the 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 argument that the movie's making and his character specifically that he would view kindness as this continual act of violence um and and as infuriating and as upsetting as it was for me it was also kind of nice and comforting in a lot of ways because again it is the solidification of like um so long as these insane fucked up codes of like chivalric patriarchal violence continue to exist and as long as we kind of like can't um unlink ourselves from these horrible things that we are we are taught to believe are true um the the sort of true kindness of the world uh theoretically that is like uh familial love or or just sort of general love for for our fellow man um will never be able to thrive and flourish because there will always be someone who will choose to corrupt the definition of kindness by associating it with violence yes absolutely and you're talking about how you expected you know them to have their Faramir and Eowyn moment um, and maybe reject violence. What I was expecting was more they flee, but somehow Fjolnir's rage you know follows them to um, wherever they're going, and they're like quote unquote called back um, to fight and do the end violence to end the story. But no, it is absolutely a choice made by Amleth. Like he could have been fine. He could have gone and lived off with his hot blonde wife and have their (laughs) twins. And um, they've already prophesied that it's going to be a line of Kings. So you're like sitting really pretty right now. Like if you just cash out, you know, leave the casino right at this moment. Um, I mean, besides, you know, butchering people and turning them into horse sculptures, you're generally coming out pretty good, all things considered. But he actively decides to abandon all that. Um, And he abandons it pretty much knowing that he's not going to come back and find uh, Olga again. Uh, So it's like, it's not like a traditional story would, you know, kind of does the reluctant hero thing. He doesn't really want to do um, the violence that will end the thing, but he has to because there's no other choice. Um, this clearly gives Amleth a choice and he actively chooses the violent option. So I really love all those choices as it feeds into the themes of the film. Um, so this is really interesting for me. So so um, after he arrives, um, after Amleth arrives at this like uh, Icelandic town that, that Fjolnir is uh, lording over, do you see 
like, do you get the vibe that like Fjolnir is a man who is in charge and like a man who is an aggressor? Is that like how you read on him? No, not really. Um, or at least not in a extraordinary way. Yeah. Um, he doesn't seem like specifically cruel or specifically violent in a way that the film hadn't kind of laid a baseline for already. Um, to be honest, um, I know we talk about your eyes a lot. Um, I didn't even really recognize that was Klaus Bang um, <laughs> as his uncle when he got to the farmland. I'm like, oh, he's getting to this farmland. He's eventually going to fight his way to wherever the seat of power is. And this is kind of just a village <laughs> along the way. And then it's just like, oh, there's, oh, that's him the whole time. Um, I, I don't know why I didn't put it because Klaus Bang looks like Klaus Bang. There's no real mistaking him, um, except if you think he looks like the hound, which I think <laughs> you mentioned. Uh, but like, so like, I didn't even put it together, but like, especially now thinking back on it and the way this film wants me to think back on it, like, obviously like the sports games they played were brutal and they're slavers, um, you know, so there's like no, uh, gray area with that in terms of morality, but it, it didn't feel like, especially cause the previous scene is watching Amleth and his wolfish Viking berserker people like lay waste to a town. Um, that doesn't really seem like where. Fjolnir was at the time with his camp in Iceland. Yeah, so so this is interesting to me. So the reason why I ask is because I kind of viewed him basically from after the slave trade that sees Amleth one. Um, I see him as kind of like a bent and cowed man. Like I don't really see him as the aggressor beyond, like you say, beyond the sort of violence that's already inherent to the system. I don't really see him going like above and beyond. So it was interesting for me. Like, I don't think it's a wrong interpretation at all, but it was interesting for me to hear you say that, like you thought that Fjolnir would uh, follow Amleth. Cause I think that's definitely what like Amleth's whole sort of, um, plot is is set up to make you think like i think that's spot on but i i'm now realizing that i didn't at all consider that a possibility and i think it was because partially this could be because this was around the time when i realized that he wasn't the hound so i was like okay maybe this guy just isn't gonna do loads of violence later um but um i didn't think that he would come after him i kind of thought that was done um so it was really interesting hearing you say that because i was like oh yeah that is also like exactly what this movie wants wants like wants you to kind of panic about that is spot on yeah no i was thinking like the violence would follow him um it was just kind of like it's more of like a trope i've seen in other stories um i was actually specifically thinking of shocking uh, a game of thrones <laughs> uh when ned stark figures out that cersei's kids are jamie's and not king robert's and he, Ned Stark goes up to her is like, go get out of the capital um, and just get as far away as possible because wherever you go, Robert's Roth will follow you. Like those were the lines that were specifically ringing in my head uh, when I was looking at that scene. Um, so it's more like something like that or even something like in Star Wars, you could imagine Vader following, you know, his wrath would reach the ends of the universe or something like that. Like. Um, that just traditional, you know, quote unquote, villain coded characters are like that. But I think the whole point of what's happening in the middle and final act of this film is kind of re rejiggering what you thought was like, quote unquote, good guy, bad guy. And I think those are really bad terms to use for a story like this. But like, as we'll discuss, as we get into the actual ending, like I'm basically kind of rooting for Fjolnir in the end, like. Sure, the dude did a lot of bad stuff, uh, but yeah. um, in the end, he's not the one that's like butchering children like ad nauseum just to, um, you know, seek out some revenge fantasy. In fact, like 
slavery is violence. I don't want to like pretend that isn't, but like he makes one very strategic kill. His brother, he becomes king. Um, it's not just like wanton violence and destruction everywhere he goes with limbs and heads just like littering the battlefield. It's it's a lot more directed. I'm not saying that's better, but it's not like as you say, he's not some like vengeful god that's you know kind of laying waste to all around him. Yep. Yep. Agreed. So at this point, Fjolnir, or sorry, Amleth uh, returns back to the homestead where Fjolnir is, um, and then he basically kills everyone that isn't a slave, and that includes both uh, Gudrun, uh, his mother, and uh, Gunnar, his half-brother, um, though uh, killing his half-brother was kind of incidental when uh, he was, you know, killing his mother. Um, this uh, gunner kind of tried to jump up behind him and it's like, hey, stop doing that. And then Amleth just kind of spins around with sword fully unleashed and just basically like chops him in half. Yeah. Um, so it, it's very much shot and like it's not on purpose per se, but he clearly wasn't even thinking about having any sort of carefulness or restraint. He was just like, if I turn around, my sword turns around with me. And if you get stabbed on the way, that's your own damn fault. <laughs> Um, and at this point, Fjolnir walks in, um, sees his dead family, and instead of immediately going into like some kind of berserker rage mode himself, he picks up his dead wife and son, um, and he just basically carries them out and tells Hamlet he'll meet him at the gates of hell, which for this story is the volcano Hecla, um, which is a good job of subbing in for hell. But I really love that instead of just like drawing his sword right then and there, he like picks up his kin. He wants to show them a kindness first by getting their bodies away and giving them whatever last rites they may have. I also love just like the raw strength it kind of shows, the way he has his uh, dead wife like slung over his shoulder and then he's carrying his son like it's a basket. Um, And I'm not saying like, oh, that's super cool. He's carrying his dead kid like that. (laughs) Um, But it just like, it's it's like an indelible image. Like when you see that kind of feat of strength on uh, in a moment in cinema, it kind of sticks with you. And I, I just loved every bit about this scene as well. Well, so it's the kit that he's he's got over his shoulder. But at first, and I thought this was like this, like, oh, my God, it was such a moment. And he drags her out by the scruff oh, of her, right. like by her collar. And I was like, they didn't have to do that. They chose specifically to do that. And it's banging that they chose to do it like that because you're right like he is a strong guy and and it looks like strength in it because he's obviously pulling her with an immense amount of force but to have her drag on the ground like that i was like banging this movie knows what it's about um the other thing i wanted to point out is that um robert eggers generally is uh, whoever does his lighting um and his photography is uh kind of a, a master at this super theatrical lighting because you've got this um, great shot when Fjolnir comes in the doorway where it's just the the it's meant to like look like the light of the fireplace against him and darkness behind him and it looks like a whole bunch of the shots in in the lighthouse like especially the one where Willem Dafoe is telling that sort of spooky tale of the sea and it's the 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 light right up against him uh, and and it looks like a flash of, of lightning up against him and everything is sort of dark and it gives that sort of feeling of like stepping into the kind of nether world or, or the, the the sort of plane beyond our plane um, and it's it's just a brilliant work of, of lighting but that that whole kind of scene actually um, evokes for me um, Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge, um, which is sort of one of these these family tragedies that, you know, Arthur Miller is so brilliant at. Um, but at the very end of A View from the Bridge, the the lead um, who who is 
I hate the term anti-hero, but who's effectively this sort of anti-hero that this protagonist that is not a, a protagonist you want to actively root for, um, Eddie Carbone, um, he shows up and, and has to face down the um, incidental consequences of, of his actions. And he also takes this like um, incredibly tough and, and sort of masculine silence with him. And it is that kind of tough and masculine silence that is the kind of heartbreaking moment of all of this, because it's like the minute this guy actually chooses to shut the fuck up for once is because he's been so broken. And the only thing he can do is try to exude this physical strength because everything else has abandoned him. Um, and of course, uh, uh, Amleth in return only has his physical strength, but is also now falling back on this code of honor that he has that says that he's not um, driven to a blind rage where he can only kill things. He's actively able to stop here and let this 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 um, anti-father figure come in and take away the dead because he has some control over what he's doing. And it's like, you know, it, oh, it was such a great scene. I loved it. Yeah, no, I... I this is one of the scenes that I'm going to like sit with for a long time, rewatch this as soon as I can and like really come to grips with everything that's happened. I think it's a great scene by Klaus Bang. Um, I hope I've been saying his name, right. <laughs> um, I've only seen it written all this time, but um, like, I think there's like legitimate, like heartbreak on his face and not like sobbing heartbreak that you would see in like a melodrama of today, but it just like, you can just see it in between the eyes. Um, like he, he did not want any of this to happen. He just, he just wanted Nicole Kidman, uh, which, you know, fair enough. Um, but I guess that basically takes us to our final sequence, uh, the literal gates of hell, uh, the volcano Hecla, which, uh, gives off real Mustafar vibes. Um, what happens is, uh, Amleth rides up the volcano. Along the way, he finds the bodies of Gunner and Gudrun, or Gudrun. I'm sorry, I've been butchering her name all episode. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, Fjolnir has laid them to rest rather peacefully at the foot of the volcano um, so that they're not in the way of lava or whatever else. Um, but it's also like a stark reminder to Amleth on his way up to this final battle. Like, this is, you know, the price of everything that he's done. Um, or at least part of the price. Obviously, there's a lot more violence involved. Um, and then we get like two combatants fighting naked amongst <laughs> ash and cinders and lava. And it's just super fantastic looking. Um, the way that um, it's shot. And oh, I looked up the director of photography for Eggers is Jaron Blaschke. And it's almost like silhouetted in a way. Like the lava is like this bright orange and red color. But then the actual bodies of... Fjolnir and uh, Amleth, they're not quite silhouettes, but they're so dark relative to the background that it basically is like two shadows uh, fighting amidst the gates of hell. And they're basically shadows at this point. They're barely men um, because everything that they were, they had has basically been stripped away of them, including their clothes. Um, so what's left is very, very little and soon it'll be nothing at all as both will die in the sequence. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's so obvious and so overt, like, exactly what they're saying with this. Um, one of the things that kind of cracks me up, though, is because, like, it is obviously immensely evocative of, of uh, Mustafar. Um, and given that I think we can probably, like, there's probably a good consensus that in the end, both of these guys going after one another, neither of them is the good guy, neither of them is the winner. Um, why is it that we, like, watch the Mustafar scene in Star Wars and are like, oh, but obviously Obi-Wan Kenobi is still the good guy in this. Obviously, like, he's done nothing wrong. Like, 
bro, what the fuck? Think about the things that you were watching. Um, anyways, yeah, I mean, it was awesome. Um, I, I know, like, um, the actual... I've... Okay, maybe this is, like, a, an invitation into my uh, degenerate brain here. But, like, I've never seen a beheading on screen that has not looked vaguely comical. Like, they've literally just, like, flicked the head off of, a like, a G.I. Joe or whatever. And this one also had that where it was, like, very much like a Barbie doll head fall into the ground. But it still kind of made me gasp because it was, like... Even to the end, I was kind of rooting for these guys to pull it together and to see them not do it was like, yeah, sounds about right. Like, it is shocking. It is awful. But also sounds about right. Yeah, I think the best beheadings I've seen are generally comical in nature and like usually intentionally show they're like stylized to have all this blood squirting out and (laughs) um, kind of goofy, maybe uh, Army of Darkness style. Uh, less so like seeing something that's really riveting with the beheading, like the way uh, we see here. Um, the death blows, just to be specific for y'all, um, Fjolnir gets his head cut off, but at the same time, he sticks his sword into Amleth's chest. Um, so we basically see the silhouette of Fjolnir losing his head and then his body collapsing while a sword sticks through Amleth as his body collapse. Um, And then we kind of end the movie with Amleth having a vision of Olga raising their children. And then we get to see a Valkyrie um, carrying Amleth towards the gates of Valhalla, which is embedded in the world tree Idrisil. And that is roll credits. Yeah. um, I mean, this is this is to me uh, to bring it back to the the point of this podcast and the clunkiest segue imaginable. Um, this is to me uh, Eowyn's line in, in the Return of the King books, which is all your words are to say uh, you are a woman and your part is in the house, but when the men have died in battle and in honor, you have leave to be burned in the house for the men will need it no more. And, and that's what it is. Like, I, you know, I'm not arguing for um, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy to become a woman warrior. Obviously, the, the whole sort of thesis of this film is that the violence is awful and corrupting, but it is amazing how perfectly it fits into at the end the woman is left to quite literally pick up the pieces um she she has to you know first off Anya Taylor-Joy is incredibly thin um and birthing two twins uh is probably would probably have ripped her apart so let's be real she's gonna die um but secondly she is left with raising these two kids who are prophesied to start a line of kings um, and she has to do it all by herself um, and is effectively actually in a worse overall position than the other woman that we've seen in this film who who at least had the sort of um, protection of uh, a type of male violence uh, there to quote unquote defend her um, and then also the, the sort of financial and material support and Olga's going off into this really bleak future and it's it's um, rightly portrayed as something that is uh, potentially optimistic but is in reality <laughs> deeply grim and upsetting and it is a a, a a really great way to kind of end this film that is all about how uh, your perception of these things um, can vastly kind of alter uh, your reality and your decision making. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, And then I guess we'll have a little bit more in-depth discussion about stuff. We've hit on a lot of this stuff as we've gone, but uh, the first thing I want to talk about is perspective and point of view, which this story plays with quite a bit. Um, as we talk about um, halfway through the story with that scene with Nicole Kidman, uh, we kind of recontextualize everything we had seen. And one of the first things we uh, get recontextualized is early when Amleth's father is killed. 
Um, we stick with Amleth as he's trying to flee his village. I think first he goes to see if his mom's okay. And then he sees his mom being carried off. And then Amleth kind of stealths his way around and eventually working his way out of the village, um, including removing a guy's nose, if I remember correctly. Um, but we don't really see what specifically is happening with Fjolnir and uh, his mom. Um, we Because the camera kind of stays tight on Amleth himself. So we kind of see her kicking and flailing limbs um, and some indiscriminate yelling, but we don't actually see like her face or like what her actual expression is. And in uh, her speech and her monologue to Amleth, we learned that she was actually like celebrating and whooping for joy, I guess would be the term. Yeah. And well, she, she's, she's laughing um, the whole way through. And this was interesting. Um, and when I've spoken to different people, they've all had different answers to this question, but like, and I'm, and I'm not asking this question judgmentally, but when you watched it for the first time, did you hear her as laughing or did you hear her as screaming? I I thought I heard her as screaming, but I think that's almost like I was being like programmed to think it was screaming. Um, so like I can't actually know what I heard, but just what I assumed she was doing was screaming and my brain kind of filled in the rest, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, so, so this, this is interesting because I've had a pretty like even split of people that I've asked about this. Um, I was expecting after that like midpoint recontextualization of her character, I was um, not not surprised, but um, I'd heard her laughing. Um, and I, so I was kind of expecting that she was happy with Fjolnir. I was not expecting the extent to which her story was like a tragedy. Um, but I've spoken to a couple of people who were expecting a kind of like Rashomon kind of story where, where um, that scene um, where she's, screaming slash laughing at the start would get replayed um, and it would be made clearer that she was laughing. Um, and, and and it's interesting because they choose not to do that. Um, and it is super ambiguous as to whether or not she she's laughing or screaming. And there seems to be like a pretty even split on what people think. Um, and that is another sort of brilliant way in which this, this story kind of furthers its own argument where like, instead of saying uh, like the last duel, which I will say the last duel does this really brilliantly, instead of actually going back and recontextualizing the same scene in different ways um, as we are given more or alternate information, this story, this this film just presents the the story, quote unquote, as true, um, and you have to make your own, uh, you have to form your own opinion of it given the information that you have, and and that is is really cool. Um, and you know, I'm not dunking on, on Kurosawa at all. Um, that is also obviously like a, a, an incredibly effective way of telling the story. But that I thought was really interesting, given that that um, sort of Kurosawa narrative. Uh, um, structure is how we would like expect or be used to this story to, to be, to play out. The fact that it doesn't do that is great. Yeah, no, um, I was actually thinking much the same thing. Like, are, are they going to do a Rashomon thing? And then we see a different camera angle on the same scene. Um, and then we get that full context. And this kind of gets to one of my bugaboos with modern discourse. Um, it's basically taken as a rule to show, not tell in cinema and I get for like film 101, that's a good lesson perhaps. But like this works so much better by just having Nicole Kidman telling us and not cutting to uh, like 
here's that scene again, but from a different camera angle and it shows what actually happened. Like that's more, I don't want to call it kitty movie making, but it's definitely more hand holding yep. of the narrative. Um, and that is something that can be done effectively. Rashomon, I think, is unassailable because it is one of the greatest films of all time. And even like movies like The Last Jedi do that pretty well. Um, I, so like I have no complaint with that tactic. But I think we get so far down the show not tell ethos sometimes, where it's like, no, actually, some of my favorite moments in any show or movie are when people talk about something that happened, and like through that dialogue and that performance, then you get whatever actually happened or additional context or whatever. Um, so I kind of hate that show not tell prescriptive nature of discourse. Um, so I really enjoyed that they just kind of left it there for you to sink on, as opposed to giving you um, another camera angle, which I think we've talked about before. The camera, the camera in cinema has a like level of objectivity to it. Um, like, cause you know, a lot of things are told, a lot of stories are told from a certain point of view, but when you have a camera, it's kind of like omniscient in a way. Um, or omnipresent. I'm not sure if I got the right omni word there. Uh, but, but like it kind of removes all that sort of subjectivity out of it. So kind of leaving it out, I think actually helps the story better. Um, especially as we talked about the other things about in terms of recontextualizing and like getting other points of view when we were so given Amleth's point of view through the marketing and through the first half of this movie. Yeah. So like you're right. Um, and I think one of the things that <laughs> um, is interesting to me is that this is a film with like the, now, now that I get that this is Hamlet, like um, uh, this is a film with like a fairly standard plot, um, but it's a film that therefore isn't making its chief argument through plot work, but, but through character work. Um, and I think we fall, we have fallen into this trap with a lot of sort of big budget action flicks now, um, where the, the argument of the film, if there is an, even is an argument of, is told not through character work, but through plot work. Um, and so the plot has to make you believe, has to show you A, B, and C so that you'll believe D. Um, whereas, um, in a, in a sort of character driven, um, argument in, within a, within a film or within a book, um, a, B, and C are all discussed, um, and you have to do the math by yourself to get to D, um, and, and the author or uh, filmmaker trusts you to do that math, um, but can't be certain of it, um, whereas in that sort of more plot-driven cinema where where the sort of entire algorithm and, and the sum is set out for you um, – it, you know, I'm it, I'm not saying it's condescending necessarily, but the filmmaker isn't quite as confident that you will uh, get the um, or doesn't trust you as much to to get the message or the argument of the film without explicitly telling you it. And and you're right, it does come from that sort of show not not tell logic. So we'll move on and we'll talk about the theme of revenge, a lust for revenge, as they say in Metal Gear Solid <laughs> Five. Um, and I really love this take on the hollowness of revenge or how unfulfilling it is as we see several characters kind of have revenge arcs or stories uh, in them. And I want to circle back to that marketing thing for a bit. Um, and I try not to worry about marketing when it comes to stuff because it's usually to get like the lowest common denominator into the theater. It's not really, you know, part of the art as the way I usually conceive of it. But I love that they were hitting you over the head with the avenge father, save mother, kill, kill feel near line. Cause that specifically primes you to be in a headspace where you're expecting this like a good old revenge story, you know, probably with a fair share of tragedy, especially with the Hamlet bit. But I was not really expecting it to flip 
on the head. I just was expecting it to be a good old fashioned Hamlet style revenge story. Yeah. I mean, and and this is the thing is as well, like it is very much like it is a good old fashioned revenge story, but it also isn't because of what its concerns are. Um, like, you know, uh, to a degree that the sort of hyper violence of this film has been criticized, but I actually think the hyper violence of this film is um, good. And I rarely say this about films that are marketed as hyper violence um, because it, it, it asks the important question. So like when you go see a movie like Atomic Blonde or like John Wick and you're seeing, you know, hundreds of people get gunned down and um, you're not really feeling the emotional weight of these hundreds of people get gunned down because these people who, at least in universe, are real, actual, living, breathing human beings, um, exist entirely for the sort of um, catharsis and uh, a, a, like emotional crusade of, of the protagonist. Um, but but they are actually people um, in universe. They are actually people, and so when they die, you know, people will mourn them, even if they are bad people who mourn them. They will still be mourned, um, and this movie is clear that there is necessarily a very real body count as part of uh of this sort of revenge and when you choose like the path of violence as your mode of of revenge you are necessarily going to increase uh the 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 amount of hurt and pain and suffering in the world um you know it's like this it's not a proverb but it's like that sort of folk saying where like um if you kill a murderer um, there are now two murderers. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the guiding logic of this. And it, and it asks the important question, you know, <laughs> why revenge, wither revenge, really? Uh, and uh, it's it's oddly refreshing in a film that spends so much time with this, like, horrifying amount of, of violence in it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, John Wick and the like, because an interesting pop culture phenomenon for, like, the last 20 years is the lionization of revenge as a storytelling mode, especially in for like bigger blockbusters. Um, I love, you know, Quentin Tarantino films broadly, um, especially Kill Bill Volume 1 and Inglorious Bastards. But both of those are unrepentantly revenge fantasy stories. And then John Wick and all the John Wick knockoffs have bi- have basically subsumed that adult action genre. Um, and that includes things like Atomic Blonde, like you mentioned, or Bob Odenkirk's Nobody, which is a great movie. Go support Bob Odenkirk. He also rules. And I enjoy all these films, but they have the philosophical depth of like a Charles Bronson Death Wish movie, which is to say not at all. Um, those movies are basically conservative fantasies. And I just kind of think challenging that revenge fantasy fulfillment is why I vibe with certain things, I, why I vibed with this film, why I really like the recent Batman flick, um, also Metal Gear Solid Five, which I opened the segment with. Um, these are all games where, or stories where every character is on like a revenge arc, or so to speak, and watching every last one of them be hollow, unfulfilling, or destructive, that's really telling me something as opposed to this kind of might makes right revenge style story that we see in lesser, I don't want to call it lesser, but kind of like we, that wish fulfillment uh, storytelling we see that's all over the place right now. Yeah. And it's also interesting because I think it influences like a lot of the actual politics of liberation right now. And and certainly in um, sort of more mainstream feminist circles, um, you will hear more of a um, and people won't out, outright say revenge. Like, like I think there is a, 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 either a, higher degree of or a total lack of self-awareness that when people have these conversations uh, effectively demanding revenge, um, they're smart enough to, or dumb enough to not say revenge. Um, but a lot of the sort of, um, incorrect trends in, in 
feminism right now, certainly Anglo-Syrian feminism, um, are concerned with revenge at all costs. And so it's not actually about like um, genuine emancipation from from patriarchy or or the, the, the sort of uh, liberation of women. Um, it is about uh, women getting their own against men uh, and and uh, becomes this sort of patriarchal dick measuring contest. Um, and it is frustrating to see because um, as this movie shows, this desire for revenge is a race to the bottom. And, and um, you know, it's not to say that um, all sort of oppressed people should, you know, be the bigger man against oppression, uh, because like obviously that that kind of being the bigger man and, and, and sort of peaceful roots only work when your oppressor actually has a conscience, which isn't necessarily true. Um, but thinking about the hows and whys of when uh, revenge and 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 violence and and this sort of um, desire to get your own against someone um, is actually uh, useful versus when it is literally kind of this more base uh, desire for emotional catharsis at risk to a wider political project is like a really important thing. Um, and again, far more sophisticated than I think we're used to seeing. Um, and, um, you know, so, okay, so I haven't seen Kill Bill, um, but I have seen, uh, well, I've seen quite a few of the other Quentin Tarantino films, but I actually think of all of them, uh, Inglorious Bastards does this probably the best, um, because it tethers that revenge wish to a very explicit political project, which is anti-fascism. Um, and so, you know, while I am less comfortable with like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, for example, um, because it definitely feels more like that kind kind of wish fulfillment, uh, revenge fantasy, um, being clear that these things can work if there is a very well thought out and carefully constructed political program behind it is, is really crucial. And incidentally, um, or maybe on purpose, uh, the North man gets that bang in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do quite like Inglorious Bastards and I shouldn't have elided the fact that it is part of an anti-fascist project. Um, I'm specifically more thinking about like the John Wick and the John Wick knockoffs. Um, I remember in a film group chat I'm in, and I, I think it was when something was announced like in the last year, I'm like, is every movie really have to be a John Wick knockoff? And everyone yelled at me <laughs> because that John Wick rules. And I'm like, I love those movies. Like John Wick three is one of my favorite films that said, I just don't need that to be the entire adult action genre because those are the only movies that we get. It's either that or Marvel movies, which are all ages, you know, action movies. Um, so I just was kind of getting bored of the same old something bad happened to me. So I'm just going to go kill a thousand people and it's going to be a fun time, which it is a fun time. But I just was hoping for a little more variety. Yep. Yep. Totally. Right. So I think as I've probably said ad nauseum so far in this uh, episode of this podcast, um, I think this film has an incredibly sophisticated take on on masculinity and on um, patriarchy. Um, and um, because maybe I haven't like uh, said clearly yet what I think this uh, film's thesis is either on, you know, incidentally or uh, purposely, um, I think the argument that this film is making about masculinity and patriarchy is this. First, um, that patriarchy is, while largely inescapable, still a human construct and still, therefore, impermanent. Um, and I think this movie is saying that while we are all both victims and perpetrators of patriarchy, um, it's also important to note that it's not just women that are victims and just men that are perpetrators. Because patriarchy is this inescapable system, 
it means we are all both all the time. And in the same way that it is impossible to escape capitalism, yes, even if you grow all of your own food and make all of your own clothes, you are still subject to the constraints of capitalism. It is also similarly impossible to individually escape patriarchy. It necessarily requires a more collective effort. Um, and, and, in so many ways, I think this is a, a a really remarkable and really like genuinely refreshing take on 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 patriarchy. Um, and when um I saw the film for the first time, I I, I kind of walked out of it thinking that um there is a very good chance that um. Robert Eggers is the only cis man in history to have thought uh, as genuinely about his his gender and and what being a man means, um, and then to have turned around and uh, so compellingly turned it into this kind of like cinematic oeuvre he has between uh, this and uh, uh, the lighthouse and the the witch the witch um, he he really has this um, incredible position right now as this unsung cultural theorist of of masculinity and manhood uh and i am so fucking psyched about this film i i like i want to make it mandatory watching for so many different groups of people just because of how brilliant this thesis is yeah absolutely uh i endorse all that i agree with emily that the message of this movie is dudes rock <laughs> and we will leave it at that <laughs> Uh, I want to run down really, I'm sorry. I have like nothing useful to add on the masculinity thing. I do actually agree with everything that Emily said there. I didn't want to just like, yeah, no, I, I was definitely listening to the things you said. <laughs> uh, but, uh, me transitioning is more, I have nothing to add, not, you know, let's get away from this topic because I agree with every last bit of it. Um, just to run down some of the Shakespearean allusions and allegory here, um, we hear early that Fjolnir was ousted by the Herald of Norway, which just makes me think of Fortinbras. If you have no idea who Fortinbras is, you know, good luck to you. You are a normal human being. <laughs> um, I am someone who thinks about Fortinbras a lot. He, he re- he's kind of, he's a very minor character that only shows up at the end of Hamlet, but like the threat of his invasion kind of hangs over the whole narrative. Um, and when he arrives, everyone had already killed themselves. So... <laughs> There's that, but um, I don't know. I think about him a lot. I like the name, too, Fortinbras. Yeah, it's great. Um, the movie often references the Norns. Um, the Norns are mysterious women who control and create fate, according to Norse mythology, um, often depicted as weavers or threaders of cloth. Um, I'm very familiar with the Marvel Comics version of it, which is same idea, except it's just three women instead of you know an innumerable amount of them. And they are referenced in the story, and I don't think they're trying to do much with it. It's just part of like the Norse tapestry of mythology they're borrowing from. But it did finally like make some connections for me, um, because um, the Norns are kind of also, or like the witches in Macbeth are kind of a take on the Norns in a way. They're not like controllers of fate, but they kind of same serve as very similar narrative purpose. And then I started thinking about Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, which is his adaptation of Macbeth. And in that, instead of the three witches and their cauldron, it's just one ancient woman spirit, and she has a loom or a wheel that she's, you know, looming, weaving, whatever whatever it might be. So it kind of just like, this has really nothing to do with the Northmen, but it kind of like, because of how this movie used the Norns, I was able to draw connections to other Shakespearean adaptations, which I thought was kind of neat. Yeah, word. 
Um, I mentioned uh, Willem Dafoe's Skull is an homage to both the Hamlet soliloquy in Act 3, which I think uh, Laurence Olivier, again, popularized, including the skull for Hamlet to talk to, and then is very consequential to the actual Act 5 gravedigger speech. The reason I kept um, hammering home the whole Laurence Olivier version and the skull and talking to the skull, um, because I was wondering if Eggers was trying to shout out um, like other adaptations of Hamlet, um, because the ending, the final battle, is pretty much the same thing that ends The Lion King. Um, Scar and uh, Simba is basically the same as Fjolnir and Hamlet in this case. So I was just kind of wondering if uh, Eggers was kind of being cheeky and seeing how many different references to other Hamlet adaptations he could work in. Um, and lastly, I do want to shout out that Ralph Ineson, who has a very small role in this, was also in the Tragedy of Macbeth film by uh, Joel Cohen, uh, Ethan Cohen, one of the Cohens, <laughs> half a Cohen. A Cohen. Uh, a Co. So, um, want to mention? Just want to mention that he's getting a lot of Shakespearean or Shakespearean adjacent work as of late. Um, and then one last thing uh, we got to mention, I don't have anything brilliant to say, but this movie has a throat singing in it and the throat singing is awesome. Yeah, it fucking bangs. Um, it is the summer of throat singing. Yeah, it's, it's kind of wild. So in university, I took a world music class just as kind of one of your general electives to graduate. And we did like a three to four week course on throat singing um, and like focus on like Tuva and Mongolia. And that's like really bit, you know, those are kind of the throat singing modules we focused on, but it's been wild in the last eight to 10 months to have two ginormous kind of films, this and dude have throat singing actually be part of it, which um, not only just part of like the score, but also part of like the diegetic uh, story. Like they're actually throat singing in universe, which I, I did not expect that to like all of a sudden find new life in 2021 slash 2022. Yeah. Oh yeah. This, this rocks. I'm, I'm, I'm psyched for it. I have no intellectual reason, reason for liking it, but I love the throat singing and I love that bit in Dune where the dude is throat singing and, uh, hovering several feet above the air. Cause that is the vibe I aspire to at all moments in my life. <laughs> Yeah, one of the best uh, tweets I've seen in the last year was someone taking that scene and saying, this is what my cat hears every time I call to them. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll we'll wind down this episode as we normally do by talking about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and here I'm just going to shut up and let Emily talk and hopefully I have something to add. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm like, I am psyched for so many different reasons that this film is coming out on video on demand uh, at the moment that it is, because we are obviously right in the middle of our Two Towers coverage, which is Rohan centric. Um, and I think maybe nothing gets at the, the sort of point of the Rohan plot um, as well as this film does. Um, I, I, I think it is important to note, however, that I do not think the Rohan plot um, in the the books, at least, is as comprehensive a critique um, and as sort of full-throated a critique of masculinity and violence and patriarchy as the one Robert Eggers lodges here. Um, and I would argue, although I can't be absolutely certain, but I would argue that this is probably because Tolkien is a committed monarchist and so can't be too critical of the culture of Rohan and the berserker trope, given that he later makes Eomer uh, king of Rohan and does not later portray them as this sort of bad outlaw territory. Uh, so given that um, Eggers is a, at least ostensibly a Democrat in nature, he has a lot more freedom to sort of go more uh, full-throated on, on this critique of patriarchy and violence, which straight up bangs um 
And the other thing that I think is uh, worth pointing out is that the Valkyrie that we see once, um, maybe twice in this film, um, is effectively the stand-in for it. Well, not the stand-in to make it seem like it was purposeful, but is analogous to uh, the shield maidens uh, that we hear about in in the Rohan plot, primarily through the things that Eowyn talks about, um, which is to say, like, theoretically, the Valkyrie, like, the shield maidens are women warriors, um, but they don't actually have a material impact on the world around them. Um, so like in uh, the Lord of the Rings books, we don't actually see women in this film pick up swords and fight. Um, we just see themselves dress in the uh, trappings of warriors and violence. Um, and that is, of course, exactly what the shield maiden myth is in the Lord of the Rings. There's no in-universe documented evidence of the shield maidens having exact actually existed. Despite what I am quite certain the new Rohirrim anime will tell you, there are no shield maidens in the Tolkien universe besides the vague reference Eowyn makes to them. Don't <laughs> buy the dumbass propaganda that's about to come out. Um, anyways, um, you know, the, the whole myth of like women getting to participate equally uh, in this structure of um, like patriarchal warrior behavior and violence is obviously that it's it's a myth um, and it um, obviously the fact that women will be just equally I should say not more um, not less but equally harmed by uh, violence and and the sort of valorization of war as men. Um, and then lastly, um, and cause I'm just so absolutely so tickled by this. Um, so, uh, I want to shout out, um, Shiloh Carroll, um, who's medievalism ish on Twitter for pointing this out to me when I was having a meltdown on Twitter about this. Um, but in the two towers book, um, Faramir has this line about loving Boromir dearly and wanting to avenge his death. And that threw me for such a loop because I was like, this is within spitting distance of when he gives this long-winded speech about why violence is terrible and why violence is this absolute corrupting force and he abhors it, would never willingly take part in it unless absolutely forced to. Um, and I was kind of melting down on Twitter about this. I was like, I don't understand this. Why is this not clear to me? Um, and uh, Shiloh acting as a, a guardian angel there um, put me down the path of uh, the English medieval concept of the necessity and moral goodness of the right of men to seek vengeance for the wrongful death of one's family. Um, and that sounds like a whole bunch of uh, blabbering horseshit. <laughs> but the reason it's important is because it positions uh, the right to vengeance through the act of avenging. Um, as a moral duty um, and not as an act of emotional catharsis. Um, and this is really significant because moral duty is seen as something that is by and large done without reference to or regard for one's emotions about it. You do something um, that is your duty, not because it feels good to do it, although it is good and helpful if it does feel good to do it. You do it because you have to. Um, and so, the, so uh, you know, Faramir talking about his desire to get uh, to avenge his brother um, is not necessarily, although I would argue it slightly is, uh, an abridgment or, or, or sort of um, uh, injunction on his uh, general anti-violence position. It is a, a sort of enumeration of like the forces and the pushes and pulls of uh, violence and vengeance in this sort of wider like uh, web of uh, family and duty and uh, life under war. No, that's that's great. Uh, Shiloh's great. Um, I love her Twitter. You should definitely give her a follow. Maybe we'll, we'll, maybe we'll throw her at in the show notes or on Twitter when we post this episode because she's a great follow uh, both for her actual uh, medieval knowledge, but she's also great with how it affects uh, 
literature and fiction that is born out of that age, whether at the time or now. Um, she's very active in A Song of Ice and Fire Twitter and Lord of the Rings Twitter. So great follow and great friend. So here's to you, Shiloh. Woohoo. Um, one last thing I want to get at here, um, and this is something you know we may not get to on the cov- our coverage of the Lord of the Rings for a while yet. I don't even want to try to do the math on it. Um, but it's this question of prophecy and um, whether or not it is uh, destiny, unavoidable, inevitable destiny, or whether or not it is a choice. Um, and I bring this up, <laughs> of course, in connection with Eowyn um, and the uh, and Glorfindel's prophecy about the Witch King of Angmar. Um, one of the things that I would like to connectize with the, this with is that Glorfindel gave his prophecy uh, that, um, and the wording of it is, uh, well, closely he used to, um, not by the hand of living man shall the Witch King be slain. Uh, not exactly that. Tolkien writes it a lot prettier than I was able to do there. Um, but he gives this prophecy in the aftermath of an incredibly devastating battle um, in the Northern Kingdom. Um, and he says it when he's trying to prevent a rather uh, hot-headed, let's say, uh, king from going after the Witch King with a severely depleted military force and basically running to his own death for the chance to potentially like give the witch king a paper cut. And Glorfindel's like, hold your horses. Uh, not by the hand of living man will the witch king be brought to his death. Um, and what's important about this is that first off, it's a nice little linguistic joke that Tolkien includes there because, uh, you know, living man uh, can be interpreted in a whole bunch of ways. It could either mean living man as in men who are alive at the time that Glorfindel gives the, the, the sort of accidental prophecy. It could mean a living man. It could be like a zombie um, or a ghost. Um, it could be living man. Uh, so as it is solved uh, in in the book, um, you know, Mary and Eowyn. Uh, Mary is a hobbit. Eowyn is a woman. Uh, so so there's that sort of joke that, that Tolkien is setting up there. Um, but then there's also this question of... Um, is it inevitable just because it's been prophesied or does it require a certain amount of choices to get there? Um, and, you know, there's this wider philosophical question of like, was Eowyn always fated to be at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields? Um, and if Eowyn was always fated to be at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, then it doesn't matter what choices she makes because ultimately she's going to end up there. Um, and Tolkien correctly makes the argument that that is not compelling um, and that is not a helpful way of looking at it. And actually, um, the prophecy is effectively getting lucky um, because what leads um, Mary and Eowyn to being where they are is a series of um, compounding choices. Um, and and the prophecy um, informs uh, the interpretation of the aftermath and the consequences of those choices, as in people will later say that the prophecy was fulfilled. Um, but without those choices having been made, then the prophecy never would have been fulfilled and it would have sort of faded into the past. Um, and this film uh, is entirely about uh, how you react to prophecy. Do you take it as uh, as as meaning that you are now doomed um, in the sort of more archaic uh, definition of that, doomed to come to this end to, to fulfill this prophecy? Um, or 
can you make choices surrounding that that may later validate that prophecy or later invalidate that prophecy? Um, and in that last scene um, with Amleth speaking to <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, when you know he says, uh, the kindness to my kin here would be for me to go back and do all of this horrific violence, um, that is him actively making a choice to validate the, the prophecy on his own terms um, in pursuit of treating it as this sort of point of destiny. Um, and I think that's like a really interesting dialogue between the Lord of the Rings and, and this film. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, nothing to add. Uh, I think that's perfectly sad. I do want to just take this space to say we decided to do this film because it has a lot of overlap, both with like its origin or kind of like informing texts, um, like a lot of the Norse mythology and, uh, Viking stories that we talked about here. And also because it's a film that I wouldn't say borrows from the Lord of the Rings aesthetic, but it is kind of like an epic in its own way, although not to the same scale as Lord of the Rings. So we try to keep an eye out for films that might be like in the same vein or worth discussing with the same lens we do Lord of the Rings. I'm actually kind of kicking myself. I probably should have forced us to do a last duel episode uh, since we both love that movie, but we're going to keep an eye out. Maybe Maybe we'll make this a series, like The Fellowship of the Real or something, um, or E-E-L, um, and maybe we can, because there's a ton of movies I'd love to cover. I know I keep talking about Braveheart, um, but like there's so many movies that are important or that either led to The Lord of the Rings being the visual presentation it was, or because Lord of the Rings was the visual presentation it was, it affected what came out after. So I'd love to do these one-off episodes every now and then, um, because we do like to talk about how art is in conversation with other artists especially when it ties so closely to our subject matter. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on. Which bomb? hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting on Twitter, where you can find me avenging you, father, saving you, mother, and killing you, Fjolnir. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fjolnir. <laughs>